You're listening to The Served Up Show, a podcast that features inspiring beverage professionals and topic experts that share their passions through meaningful content. Your hostesses, Bridget Albert, is best known as the Market Fresh Mixologist, an industry mentor with over 25 years of experience. And I'm Julie Milroy, best known for my passion for leading change and helping others grow in their careers. Grab a cocktail and sit back. Let's learn how we can make a positive impact in our industry. Hey folks, it's me, Bridget here. We're really excited to welcome Miss Kathleen DiBenedetto to the show today. Kathleen is dear friends with the Jim Beam family, and she shares with us her stories about her mentor and beloved friend, the celebrated late Booker No. Kathleen has had a career that spans decades, and she has really paved the way for us women in the industry. Kathleen was also the second woman to be inducted into the Bourbon Hall of Fame, just behind Marjorie Samuels from Maker's Mark. She's someone that I personally look up to, and I know you're going to be inspired by her and her story. So sit back, relax, grab a glass of your favorite bourbon, or make yourself a Jim Beam highball and enjoy the show. Kathleen, welcome to Served Up. We are so excited to have you on the show today. Oh, thank you so much for having me. I'm enjoying uh, spending a little time with you, Bridget and Julie. Thank you. Yes. Thank you for joining us. So we would love to know about your career in the beverage world. How did you get here, Kathleen? And you have such an extraordinary career. We are really excited to hear all about it. Well, uh, well, thanks so much for, uh, for thinking about me and having me on to talk a little bit about uh, my crazy past. Um, it, is, uh, it is a pretty crazy career if I think about it. Um, as of November 27th, it was my 30th year at Beam Suntory. So for me, um, that was uh, a pivotal moment when I actually realized that uh, I had spent nearly half my life with this one organization and how that has shaped me as a person. But uh, in as much as I am super young, um, I didn't start at Beam. I started in the beverage industry, oh gosh, uh, way back. Uh, and I worked with a brand called Rumplemints. I don't know if you guys remember that brand. I remember taking shots of Rumplemints. Are you Who kidding me? Who doesn't? Oh, I was. I feel my throat tingle from the Rumplemints. Was that like a Goldschlager? What is that? Oh, oh my gosh. Uh, well, it was... Uh, the hundred proof rumplemints was the best, uh, but it was a uh, peppermint schnapps and it was uh, very edgy. And I worked on the promotion team. So I didn't actually work for the supplier. Um, there were two brands. It was Amaretti di Sirono and rumplemints and um, Amaretti di Sirono. We had a program called, called Amaretto uh, or di Sirono and me. And, uh, and I think it was the beginning of a program where they started to bring in emerging artists. And it ended up being a, vi a, a great program. And, and it taught me a lot about um, the importance of investing ahead of a curve in terms of building brands. 
Now, what Rumpelman's taught me is the importance of the on-premise and in engaging your customer. And so I am proud to say that I am the architect of Match the Tattoo. Yes, Match the Tattoo with <laughs> Rumpelman's. Uh, so let's just say that um, we had a lot of people who embraced life to its fullest who were full drinkers of uh, Rumpelman's. Uh, it was a great brand, really good people. And my, my client moved over to Jim Beam. And at the time it was called Jim Beam, Jim Beam Brands Co. And we had, uh, Jim Beam had just acquired uh, a part of Seagram. So remember Windsor and Kessler and Canadian Lord Calvert. Uh, for those of you who are around in the early nineties, these were big brands. And they were looking for somebody to help lead their imports and specialties. And so I originally moved over for that purpose and ended up changing and working on a brand called De Kuiper. And it's where my first, um, my first love was that De Kuiper brand and the 56 different fruit forward flavors of De Kuiper. Uh, with the exception of the one that I worked on, which was Cactus Juice Desert, uh, Desert uh, Margarita Schnapps. We had a Cactus Juice Volleyball Tournament, which I ran for a summer with Playboy models, um, with a camel on the beach, and a bunch of other crazy, crazy things. And uh, it was quite an indoctrination into... Uh, the other side of that business. And that is kind of the crazy side. Um, and that's where I really learned about the importance of the on-premise, the importance of brands that, that, um, that are loved by bartenders. Now at that time, De Kuiper was better known. We had Bluesberry. I don't know. Do you guys remember Bluesberry? I remember, and, uh, I remember Bluesberry. <laughs> there was a bunch of, uh, Oh, it's a blueberry pie shot. And then we had, uh, of course, butter shots is still butter shots. Mm -hmm. But remember Wilderberry? Oh, yeah. And uh, oh, my God, there was one frostbite. Oh, my gosh. And lime lizard kamikaze, which was my one of my favorites. It's just fun to say. Lime lizard. Yeah. <laughs> it, it was just, uh, I don't know why we thought people would call for these brands. But uh, at the time in the 90s, they did. Because if you recall in the 90s, I don't know. Uh, I know, Bridge, you were around. And um, if you went into accounts, I remember going on crew drives. And I was, this was shortly after I left that side of the business and moved into um, working on the small batch bourbons. And I was trying to sell bookers into accounts in Michigan. Now, Michigan is the number one state for um, De Kuiper. And they had seen me do volleyball tournaments with, you know, with, you know, margarita schnapps for, uh, for an entire year, 40 proof margarita schnapps. And I walk in with a, you know, six to eight year old whiskey that's 121 to 107, uh, 27 proof straight from the barrel, uncut, unfiltered, you know, truly the very best whiskey. And trying to get them to buy this after um, after they served me up what was called a Nemo martini. Do you remember the Nemo? 
What is a Nemo? I don't remember that. It, it was vodka, blue curacao, and a uh, Swedish fish. Okay. <laughs> it's a Nemo. And that, that was like- the big drink. And so we're sitting there. They were so proud to share with me the Nemo. And, uh, and then I brought out the big pitch for the whiskey. And uh, that was a tough time for whiskey. You remember Grey Goose was big. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> you know, that their point was always, well, uh, I've got the number one tasting with uh, vodka in the world. What do I need with bourbon? And I'm like, someday, someday you'll want bourbon. <laughs> vodka was surely king, especially in the early nineties. Oh my oh. gosh. Yes. We, we did a lot. And, and that was why De Kuiper was so fun to work on because the drinks were endless all the different cocktails. I remember the posters we do with, with every different type of cocktail. I wish I could find those and share that with you so that you can then share it with your followers. And uh, it's, I, I remember the, uh, the shot poster of all the different shots utilizing these, these unique flavors. Um, Key Largo, remember Key Largo? I remember Key Largo. Mm-hmm. Yeah, was that a lime, thing. was that a lime flavor? Um, it was tropical. Mm-hmm. It was like coconut and lime. And it, it was, it was like a, a Malibu kind of mm-hmm. with a little bit of a punch. It was like suntan lotion, but yes. with carrots in it. Yeah. <laughs> oh man. That I think we need, to, we need to find that poster and bring it back to life. I mean, Girl, I think this I'm is the look time. This you is need the time. <laughs> I think so too. We need some fun. We need color and fun. But I cannot imagine, you know, trying to place a whiskey bourbon in a time where sticky, sweet color, you know. Oh, yeah. These crazy lizard flavors is what we were drinking, right? In big, big, huge cocktail glasses with usually like a zigzag stem. So tell me about yeah, the, the first. Stem. Do you remember the zigzag stem? Yeah. I had the a fontini. gift stem. I <laughs> yes. did a gift set with the zigzag stem. Oh yeah. And everything ended with teeny. So with that, yeah. you know, um, how did you meet Booker? What was that like? Well, you know, um, I started off, I, we mentioned, I started off working on De Kuiper and after that first year of traveling and doing the, the, um, the what do you call it, uh, the volleyball tournament, I realized uh, it really wasn't my speed. Uh, it, it wasn't delivering what I wanted out of a career. And, you know, and the imports and specialties, I started to get a little bit more exposure to a Dalmore single malt scotch and I was starting to see brands with heritage and I loved it. And I intended a tasting with Booker. Now Booker had introduced Booker's, oh, back in 88, but it was really limited. And it was really for like our distributor partners and uh, they were holiday gifts and in limited quantities outside of that. And um, Booker had made the decision to go further with what he was doing with Booker's and come out with his, with other pre-prohibition style whiskeys. So he did a tasting and uh, I attended that tasting and I, and I had an epiphany while I was there. When he spoke, it, 
I, I was I realized I was looking at living history, right? Who has the opportunity to read to meet somebody who has changed the face of spirits? And you know, we know how big Jim Beam is now, and it's 2020. But think back to 1991 and how different that world was then. And, and Jim Beam was still the household name. And here was his grandson. Uh, and, and he had these amazing stories and uh, had so much to share. And I knew he was coming out with these brands. And I said, that's where I want to be. That's where I think I could have the best impact. Uh, well, unfortunately, Booker wasn't looking for any help. He really uh, felt like he needed <laughs> to do this himself because, you know, the man, he didn't believe in fussiness, you know, like the overly marketing jargon, marketing plans and things like that were, were crap to him. He, he was about truth, authenticity and realness. And um, so I, I met with him. And I expressed my interest in working for him. And the, basically, he was managing the brands out of Kentucky, and they needed somebody up in Chicago. And it was a tiny, tiny piece of business. You know, there was going to be no money against it. They were doing it for the family, as it were. And uh, so they said, go ahead, you know, talk with them. So I talked with them, and I said, I really think I, I would be the right person to, to help you here. I... I love what you say. I embrace your history. I think your family is the key to this brand success. And, you know, I'm not sure he was convinced, but I was the one who applied. So he's like, yeah, all right. He said, but if you're going to work for me, you have to learn how to make whiskey. Because unless you understand what the people at the plant go through to make this product, unless you understand that there's an art to this, that it isn't a formula that anybody can do, then um, you can't, you won't understand where I'm coming from. So um, at the time I went back to my boss and I'm like, okay, well, he says uh, I, I'm good to go, uh, but I need to go down to Kentucky and learn how to make whiskey. And of course, my boss was not happy about that. He's like, you don't need to know how to make whiskey to be able to market it. And Booker about lost his mind when he heard that. And he's like, how the hell do you think you can market a brand if you don't know about it? Oh, so you say that louder for those in the back of the room? Yeah. Yeah. How, <laughs> as Booker said, and, and these are his words, they're not mine. How do you expect to know how to market a brand unless you know about that brand, unless you know that or that business intimately? And I understood marketing. But I did not understand the process of making whiskey. So I went down to Kentucky and I stayed at the Parkview Motel across the, uh, the street from my old Kentucky home. And if anyone's ever been down there, it's Toogie's Hotel. Toogie is a family friend of, of Booker. And uh, it is a motel from the 1950s. Uh, it was an incredible experience where I you know, lived in that hotel and I would travel to the Boston, Kentucky distillery. That's the distillery that Booker ran. He ran, everyone says Boston. 
it's Boston, Kentucky. It's just, I don't know if it's east of, uh, of Claremont or what, or what, I don't know, but it's, it's around Claremont, but about maybe 15, 20 minutes away. And I went there and I learned how to make whiskey. And every night I would come back to the house, um, to Booker's house. And I would sit at the table and he test me. So, and, and you think about it this way. If you go see distilleries today, everything is run by um, uh, computers. Mm-hmm. And that's a wonderful thing because it does create a consistency and it measures that consistency and it can identify any anomaly that might affect long-term uh, taste, right? But this is the early 90s. And I honestly can say that we have, we have, our technology has changed leaps and bounds since I started. So I started at the time when there were no computers in the distillery. And you calculated the cutting of proof with a handheld calculator that you had in your pocket. You, um, you stood on the, uh, on the floor of the mash area and you waited till the temperature was at the perfect level before you dropped the rye because it was a certain temperature and a certain time that you dropped rye versus when you might uh, drop a different grain. And, and it, was a, it was a matter of patience and attention to detail. It was an extraordinary experience. And every night I go to the house and I wouldn't remember everything that they told me. And it's hard because you're working in this distillery. I'm wearing steel toed boots and it's hard to take notes and do everything at the same time. And I, I couldn't keep it all straight. So Fred always tells a story about I earned my way by crying through it. You know, <laughs> you get yelled at enough and it was, um, I was young and I wanted to please him. I wanted him to think that I cared and know how much I cared, but I, I couldn't learn it quick enough. Um, but it was a wonderful experience for me to learn from a man who learned from a legend, right? There, he's a legend, Jim Beam was a legend. And to think that I was able to touch and be part of that unique legacy is, you know, this kid from the Northwest side of Chicago, right? Second generation from, uh, of immigrants. And here I am working on America's native spirit with these people who've been in the country since revolutionary war times, right? It's, it blows my mind, but um, for me, it was, uh, it was an important step to prove that I was worthy of working on his business. He needed to know, uh, and, and I, I respect him for it. He needed to know I was willing to take it mm-hmm. and to learn what I needed to learn and to face difficult situations because I was going to be selling brands that didn't have a market. Right, right. right. No, they did not at that time. No. He believed in them. He always said, you know, uh, I was talking with uh, 
Mike Donahoe. Mike Donahoe is the sales guy. I don't know if you remember him, Bridget, um, but he was our president of, of the company. Mm-hmm. And he was the one who originally talked Booker's into Booker into coming out with Booker's bourbon. He was a good friend, used to play for the Green Bay Packers. He and Booker would always talk about football because Booker played football, Mike played football, and they were both huge dudes. And um, so what Mike, you know, wanted to see was what Booker can offer, and that is these whiskeys that had been lost in time. And um, it's this pre-prohibition style whiskey. And when when Booker explained to me his inspiration, it it came down to um, during prohibition, Jim Beam put barrels in the attic. And it was those barrels that he would thieve and get his whiskey from, excuse me, um, during the during prohibition. And now Booker was born in 1928, but he always remembered his grandfather talking about straight from the barrel whiskey, that there was nothing like it. Hmm. Um, And that there's nothing more empowering than being able to choose the proof that you drink it at, Um, choose the age that you wanna drink it at. And so that was his inspiration behind Booker's. And then thinking back to that pre-prohibition time, the way whiskey used to be, that was his inspiration for the other marks. But uh, I think we also mentioned in the beginning that uh, Booker was a guy who did not like overly fancy things. Right. He was truthful. He was authentic. um, And he was a no bullshit guy. So if you look at the small batch bourbons today, or even then, three of them were in wine bottles. Now, why were they in wine bottles? Because Booker got a really good deal on wine bottles in Bardstown. Because for him, it wasn't about the bottle. It was about the liquid that was in the bottle. And if you took the time to get to know the brand, if you took the time to get to know the product, then you would find the quality behind it. Now, marketing did get their hands onto Knob Creek and put it in a flask bottle. Now that flask bottle Booker liked because it wasn't overly fancy. It didn't have those goofy cut edges because he didn't want his bourbon to be anything other than what it was. And that was, it was true bourbon whiskey. It wasn't whiskey where the fancy package came first. You had to know this whiskey to love this whiskey. And that was his point of view. And it frustrated the heck out of any marketer that has ever worked with him in the, since the beginning of time. But you have to respect that in a way, right? It, there's a truth about it that I can't, I, I can't even express how much now I appreciate it a lot more than in the 90s when I was frustrated by it. When I would go into, um, I would go into research and we'd have, if you've ever been in research and you have people sitting around a table and you put all these bottles on the table and you'd say, okay, take these bottles and rank them in to the level of how much, how expensive you think they are. Uh, Put the expensive ones on the right side of the table, the inexpensive on the left. And for the love of Pete, our small batch bourbons in those damn wine bottles always ended up 
in the Rothgut portion of the table because nobody knew them. And I'd have to go back to Booker and say, Booker, no one knows these brands. And they, they think it's, you know, you should be drinking it out of a paper bag on a back porch. It's like, well, they'll get to know them. Did you explain about them? I'm like, no, it was a focus group. Why didn't she explain about them? You know, and so the whole point was, is he had the vision to be patient and to say, someone will figure it out. They will get there. Um, but that didn't, you know, stop us from being bananas and whatever. Well, do you believe that that Booker was the reason that the term small batch came to be? Or could you tell us a little bit about that terminology of small batch? Well, I, I don't know if Booker said the word small batch. Um, Booker was just about his whiskeys. Again, he didn't care about marketing terms. He was more focused on the liquid. Um, at the time, small batch had already been talked about by Maker's Mark. So I won't pretend that that did not exist. They had already talked about it, but we were a different kind of small batch. We were super small batch. We were like tiny small batch. I'm talking, you know, maybe a, if we were lucky, a thousand cases of bookers, 500 cases of bakers in a year, maybe 500 of uh, Basil Hayden's and, you know, woo, 10,000 cases of Knob Creek. So it was truly small batch. And we, we actually trademarked small batch bourbon collection because we felt that we offered a range of pre-prohibition style whiskeys. And, and Booker did agree with that. He agreed with the idea that the range and the differentiation created a, a better picture of what small batch meant. So while we didn't invent it, I think we may have helped define what it might mean um, to people. Uh, I, as you call at that time, uh, Blanton's was really big with their, their cute little horses, love those damn horses, and single barrel was talked about. Uh, so I can't tell you how many times we had, oh, I'd love to try your single batch whiskeys. Uh, up until about 10 years ago, it was still, well, how's those single batch whiskeys going? So um, it's taken a while for it to catch on, but I think uh, mid 2000s, people finally got that there is single barrel and there is small batch and they both can live side by side very happily. Kathleen, I know that you're really humble um, and you have really paved the way for women in our industry and especially within the bourbon world, within the spirits world, within the beverage world. And a couple of years ago, you know, you were, in, you were inducted in the bourbon hall of fame. Yeah. And I really would love to hear from you how that happened and what that experience was like for you and what does it mean to you? Oh boy. Well, uh, I, I mean, uh, that moment was a validation of many years of life's work. And we all have those moments where, uh, when that happens, uh, you're in awe of all the stars aligning in the right way. I was just lucky. I was lucky to be in that place in 91 and going to that Booker's tasting. 
I was was lucky to to be at the birth of of whiskey, even though at the time I didn't think I was lucky to be working on whiskey in the 90s. But what it allowed us to do when nobody wanted whiskey, you had to work harder to get people to like you. So the tastings and the Kentucky bourbon circle and all those things allowed us to build these brands in a slow way, which allowed me to be successful. I, I couldn't be successful unless eventually people saw the, the specialness behind the liquid of each of these bottles. I would tell you, I, I worked on the small batch from early 90s all the way till the day Booker died. I'm not kidding you. On the day he died, uh, my boss came in my office and said, you're going to be moving on a new piece of business. And I said, okay. Um, it, that's an extraordinary long time to, to stay on a piece of business. And, uh, and I knew I needed to to move on. And I also needed to find other areas where I might be able to contribute. And I, I moved on to brand education. And it was there in brand education where I was able to tell more people about these brands that I had worked on, whether it was through the virtual spirit program or um, our bourbon VIP event that's down at the distillery where we had all of excuse me, all of our brand celebrities in one spot under one tent for a, a special event. All of those moments um, led to a nomination that I was so honored to receive. Um, I was nominated by Fred as part of the family um, for Bourbon Hall of Fame. And the only woman in, in our business that had been nominated before me was Margie Samuels. It's amazing. Uh, and well, in, wow. in, in the beam side of the business. Mm -hmm. And so uh, I, I can't tell you, uh, it was, in, I was in Japan, oddly enough doing, uh, we had been acquired by Centauri and I was in the process of creating a Centauri video. And I remember receiving the call that you have been nominated for the bourbon hall of fame. And can you be free on blah, blah date to receive this honor and to do a press conference? And I, and I, uh, they told, uh, it was with Ian McCallum and uh, they told me they could hear me screaming through the, the walls because it was such an extraordinary experience. And I know it sounds goofy when I talk about it, but it was, it was um, uh, unbelievable. And I remember I brought my mom down. I have two boys. I brought my boys down, my mother-in-law, my father-in-law. I, I brought my whole darn family down and friends for that moment. Um, and as I said before, uh, it, I was lucky. I was gifted with a moment that I was able to make special. And, uh, and I was, and I'm to this day grateful to have been part of that family. I feel I, I owe them so much. I always protect that family. Uh, I'm in, still up in Chicago and every time I see something that I don't think is right for Jim Beam or our small batch, I'll say something because I, I feel like 
I owe them so much. They have given me so much. I owe them so much. So it, it is special. Um, in, uh, two years ago, I, I had the incredible opportunity to have my own batch of Booker's bourbon. And that was, uh, it was the second time I was like, oh my Lord, this is unbelievable. We need to tell the listeners all about Kathleen's batch. Oh, it was yes. such a special bottle. What an incredible moment. I was one of the very lucky ones that was able to taste it. I want you to tell us about it. Oh my gosh. It was, it was a wonderful, wonderful opportunity. Fred had selected three samples and he had called me and he said, listen, uh, I'm wondering, uh, do you want to be on one of the Booker's batches? You know, like it's nothing. I'm like, are you kidding me? Of course I would. And um, it, it was, uh, it was crazy. He, he brought three different samples and we sat down and we tasted them. And I said, so, so what do you think I should go with? And he said, I'm not telling you what to go with, you know, Freddie, that's your choice, not my choice. And I'm like, okay. And uh, I uh, spent a lot of time with those three samples. I still have them in my China cabinet. And I picked out exactly what I loved. And uh, I have, I am sorry about all the sounds from my computer. Um, to this day, I have one of my very favorite bourbons in Kathleen's batch. Um, Six years, three months old, 127.3 proof. Um, and we launched it in New York City. Uh, uh, again, I, I sat there in this account and there's this Kathleen's Batch poster. And, and I was just thinking to myself, how is this possible? How does this happen to me? You know, I am so lucky and so blessed to, to be in this company that, you know, when you're in high school, you think, what am I going to do when I get older? You know, am I going to be a nurse? Am I going to be a doctor? I'm not going to be a doctor. Uh, I was never going to be a nurse. Uh, but I thought, well, maybe I'll, I don't know, be a, a market analyst or something. I don't know what I was thinking. And I never thought this is where I'd end up, Bourbon Hall of Fame. And to have a bottle of whiskey, seven cases of which I have hidden in my my son's bedroom upstairs just for forever. It's like, I don't want to give him away. I'm like, I just want to keep looking at him to know what actually happened. <laughs> but um, we did this, this press conference and I talked with these people and we all sampled the different three batches. We actually all sampled the batches together. And, uh, and we all came to the same place where I ended up, which was um, the, the batch that became Kathleen's batch. And I always remember after that, uh, I was with the brand director on the business and he said, what do you wanna do now? And I said, I wanna go for a ride in a horse and buggy in Central Park. I've never done it. And tonight's the night we need to do it. And we took our little batch of Kathleen's batch and we got in that goofy horse and carriage and rode through Central Park, and it was a surreal experience. And I, I get the chills just thinking about it. And I feel like I'm being very selfish talking about it so much, but it was a moment I'll never want to forget. 
I came home and I wrote all about it so that I remember later how it felt. That's incredible, Kathleen. And I know you give, you are so humble and I know you say so much that it's about luck, but I just want to quote this article that was in the Bourbon Review, um, quoted by Fred No, who said, I'm thrilled to honor Kathleen as someone who has poured her heart and soul into our brands for more than 25 years, especially our super premium bourbons. Yeah. So it's luck and heart and soul, I'd have uh, to say. It is. And that's what I always tell people. Um, it's perseverance, don't you think? I find that more Absolutely. than how smart you are or how much money you have, it's if you just continue to keep on keeping on even when it's difficult that, that you persevere. It, it's easy to look back now and say, I, I'm lucky it was easy, but it was hard work and it was difficult. Mm-hmm. And, and then people are always like, oh, Booker, he was so, so loving and like a big bear. And he was a really great guy, but my Lord, he was difficult. That man had rules. And you live by those rules. And if you did a tasting with him and you even slightly said something that wasn't true, he'd call you out. He'd say, now, Kathleen, you know that's not true. And he'd do it in front of a group of 400 people with media. So uh, for me, I think Booker has taught me some very important lessons. Um, As Fred has taught me lessons about sheer um, humility and and authenticity in, in, a, in a world where he could have anything, he chooses to be as humble as who he is. Uh, I, I think the world of that family, I, I can't say it enough. Oh, Kathleen, you also have your family and, yes. and you raised two boys. Um, over the years and I know Julie and I we talk a lot about what it's like to be a mom in this industry that you either love or you just don't and so when you talk (laughs) about like perseverance you know it's part of it it's part of you know trying and I don't believe in balance by the way unless it's in a freaking cocktail that's where that's where I believe that balance belongs but in real life oh gosh no yeah Um, but that's true yeah, I, I uh, well, I tell you, my son is now works for Southern and he sells Bacardi. Um, so he does not work on our portfolio. He is one of the top sellers here in Chicago in the chains. I'm so proud of him. Bridge was at, there at the beginning to help him when he first started. And you'd be so proud of uh, what he's done to build his business. Um, my younger boy is in college and um you know, it's, it's, it's interesting. Um, they, and I don't know if you find this with your kids as well, but we do things like we stop videos to see what's on the back bar. Mm-hmm. You know, what, what's that bottle on the back bar? Oh my God. How come there's no, you know, bookers. Why am I seeing Woodford reserve on that back bar? Not that there's anything wrong with Woodford reserve, but I'm saying, you know, uh, we look at shelves in stores. 
I go to accounts and we all stop at the bar to look and see what's on the back bar. So it is a family business. You do learn things through osmosis. And, um, and I have to say, Dom loves what he does. Dom is my older boy. Christian is my younger kid. He's a, he's a hockey player and um, he works at a sporting goods store and is living his best life. Pretty soon he'll start the real world and, <laughs> you know, you know how old that will be, but your, your, your guys' kids are much younger than mine, but it's, uh, it's great to, they, they've been there the whole time. I think I have a picture of Dominic when he was two with a big, no, he couldn't have been two. Yeah, he could have been two, a big 175 in Knob Creek because we had just come out with that size and it was so huge. It was like as big as his body. Uh, of course, I've never shown anybody that because it, it's just a tad bit inappropriate. But this is what we do as liquor business this is people. What we do. Yeah, yeah. I, I think I have a couple pictures of my son carrying three liters of wine when he was oh, about that age, helping me move it from one side of the room to the other. I know. And I'm, everyone's always like, isn't that too heavy for you to carry? And I'm like, I carry bot- uh, cases of whiskey. I can carry this. Yeah. So. We, I don't think we can get hired unless we can care or pick up a full nine liter of, of alcohol, right? I think that's a prerequisite. That's probably the only prerequisite. And if you're picking it up correctly with your knees, yeah. with your legs. With um, heels no. on. Oh yeah. With heels on. I used to travel with a, a rolling bag because I, I, my half of my job, 50% of my job um, when I worked on the whiskeys was selling in the field. And so, but Bridge, you did say something important than that is, do we believe in, in balance? And um, no, it is, it is nearly impossible for, for women to have both that hugely successful career and deliver the kind of care that we, that is expected of moms and and I'm a single mom. I, I was married, but um, divorced when my kids were young. And uh, I, I think it's it's hard to explain, but um, I do think that there's going to have to be some changes in the future in, in terms of what men pick up and also expectations of women. Um, or the fact that there shouldn't be shaming. I had a nanny who all but raised my kids because I traveled so much. And that's terrible in my head. But in my mind, I have two healthy, happy boys, right? So we've also got to stop the judgment of ourselves and of each other. So. A hundred percent. I... I always felt the same way and, and people would tell me, and I've, and I've read articles that actually say that, that kids and and young boys, especially when their mothers work and have careers, they actually become more successful in life. And, and that was new to me because I always thought it was about staying home. And I remember one time I had one of my, when my son was very young, one of my customers that, that ran a restaurant. Uh, saw me with my boy and he turned around and he said, wow, your son is so lucky to have a mom that is so awesome 
into her career and does all this. And, and he told me that his mother never did anything. She wasn't interested in anything and it really impacted him in a negative way growing up. So I think, I think we are hard on ourselves and I yes. think that we need to be proud that we have a career. And I, and I tell my son, I love my job, you know, and I hope that when you get older, you find a job that you love. I, that, I think that's really important and, and that you want to work and, and you want to put that in, but, but yes, it's also important to be in the moment and, and spend those special times with, with your family and, and, you know, do that as a mother too. There's a lot. Yeah. It's not easy. I mean, it is not easy. You know, look, Paige is 17 now and she grew up in this industry. You know, mm -hmm. I've been, I've been in this industry now for 28 years for a long time and made a lot of sacrifices on, on my, my behalf, on her behalf, on Jamie's behalf, you know, to stay in this business and a lot of sacrifices that I know that men would not have had to make. Um, but I do see some change on the horizon. I do see changes being made in major companies, you know, that yes. just did not exist 10 years ago. So I do think that we are creating something better for our children. Um, and as being, I've, I've always been a working mom. I was, when I was pregnant with Paige, my doctor had to tell me to stop working because my feet got two sizes bigger than they were when I, before I was pregnant and my shoes wouldn't fit. And I was bartending at one of the busiest bars in Las Vegas. And, oh, I, and I was like a freaking animal back there. I just was like, just slinging drinks, you know? And so she's been with me through it all. Um, yep. But I have to say that I do believe in a lot of ways that my career has made me an even better mother. Oh, yeah. When I have the downtime, I'm all in. I'm oh, 100 percent in. Exactly. A hundred percent. And I would also say I, I think our industry is special. Like I, I feel like um, Beam is family for me, right? Um, every year I went down to Bourbon Festival with Dominic when he was a baby, then with Christian. And when they come down, we stay at the Knob Creek house. Uh, they, we know their family. I've watched little Freddie grow up. Little Freddie, who's now the distiller. So it is more than just a job. And I think that's what makes it special. And I would say bartending is similar to that, where you have a family that you're around and they're, they're people, you watch their kids grow up and you care about their kids. And it's, uh, I think it's a really unique industry. I can't say I've worked in another industry, so I don't know, you know, how different it is elsewhere. But I think, I somehow think it's kind of special. I agree. I think it is a very special industry and, and we have all of, we have our challenges like any other industry, but I think there is that family, that community components. But I also think that it's so important to have a partner, you know, Kathleen, I mean, I, mm -hmm. my mother raised me as a single mother working multiple jobs with my brother. So oh, I know, boy. I know how that is. And I can tell you, we have one son and my husband is such an anchor. I mean, we are equal partners. He'd probably say not so equal because he <laughs> probably takes the bigger half, but I think, um, for, 
for people out there, that's really important in making that decision on, on who your partner is, because there is no role. The female should be this role and the male should be this role. You're in it together. You're a team. And, and that will definitely, if you have a good partner, it's, it's definitely a, um, an easier experience, right? And, and it's still a challenge. Don't get me wrong. I, I don't know how I would be able to do it if I was on my own. So well, I commend you, you. You do it. <laughs> yeah. But I, I love that you, you said that, that there is no role. There is no job description that you follow. And, and it's just working together. And um, that that is really really key for people to understand. I also think the selection of a person who's really going to, knowing who you're gonna be spending your life with, really knowing them is essential, but this is not therapy. This is uh, a a whiskey podcast. It's so, always uh, therapy. It's always, <laughs> this is my therapy. <laughs> Are you kidding me? It's and so, so how that makes me feel yeah. is uh, <laughs> tired. It makes me feel tired. And then you have really good mom. bourbon and it makes it all better. But yeah, I think we, so many of our listeners, you know, and, and I don't, I don't think that women should monopolize the fact that it's tough being a working mother. Cause I think that the young men feel the same way and the young guys I see it all the time with with some of my colleagues that have babies you know before COVID and and they're traveling and you could just see it's tearing them apart that they can't be at home so Mm -hmm. I think the more we have these conversations and we're open about it and people could hear it and and relate um the more we're we're helping yeah I I am so blessed that my boys are grown uh I don't know how people are handling this situation where they're they've got to teach their kids uh you know do they at home classes and work and keep the house so it doesn't look horrible when you're doing video calls where everyone's looking at your kitchen going oh my god she didn't do her dishes you know (laughs) this is my mother talking in my head but it's i i do think that uh these these parents who are, who are dealing with this quarantine, it's, it's extraordinary. Uh, we're going to look back at 2020 and it's going to lead to all kinds of new learning um, for, for us as a society, in my mind. I agree with you a hundred percent on that, yeah. Kathleen. I mean, we have to learn something from the, this past year. We do. What was it all for? Like we have to learn something and be better as we move into the new year. Right. Yes, exactly. Um, exactly. I would love it if you could give our listeners some advice, some good advice, uh, about our industry and, you know, especially during this time when so many are so down on their luck. And if you could just maybe give them some advice, um, to inspire yeah. them, Kathleen. Yeah. You are an, you are an inspiration to us all, so. Well, thank you. Um, well, it's my, my privilege to share with you some of my thoughts, but again, these are just my thoughts. Um, on my Kathleen's Batch label, I have, if you look at it, and I'll send you a picture, little hills and valleys with a road that goes through them, because that is what our life is about. 
there are hills where things are amazing and there are valleys where you're questioning everything. And we have to accept that this happens and that around that valley, there will be another hill. And for me, I've been at BEAM 30 years and um, it's not always been great. It's not always been great. And, um, but I've always thought that it could be worse. And it also, um, no matter where I go, I'm going to have hills and valleys. So I think about that. And I also think about um, the point of view that what I've always taken as what has made me successful is I always, in whatever I do, I always try to have the most knowledge I can possibly have. I, I wanna know more than my boss so they know it's worth having me employed. Um, if I can answer questions for them and, uh, you know, this whole idea, and it was, it was taught to me when Booker said, you have to learn how to make whiskey in order to sell my whiskey. Because unless you understand what people go through in the art of this, then you can't understand how to differentiate. Ever since then, I have made it my, my mission to understand brands and history and stories more than anybody else. So I have something marketable that I can share. You know, God forbid I lose my job tomorrow. I could go tell stories about De Kuyper, about Suntory, you know, good stories, stories about their history and unique things. I could run a travel program to Europe, to different distilleries that would take you through the history, whether it's the World War II cognac story where we visit World War II sites and then distilleries where they, you know, hid different POWs, you know. It, it, there's so many fascinating stories that are out there. And I, I take each bit of nugget to build into that little backpack of, of my knowledge so that in times where things are not great, I can create a, a something for myself. Does that make sense? Yes, absolutely. That's something that nobody can take away from you. And that's your, that's your knowledge, your experience, your stories. And, you know, with that, Kathleen, thank you so much for joining us. I think that's a beautiful note to close on. And we can't wait to have you back again to hear more of these stories. Uh, you know, oh. the, the World War II story sounds fascinating. We can have you on for another couple hours to now talk about those. So oh, there's some great stories. I, I got stories from Spain, from Scotland, from Netherlands, from France. Anytime you let me know. Well, we will absolutely have you back. Yes. Thank you guys. Thank you so much. Thank you, Kathleen. And, you know, Julie and I, we, we want to wish you just great health. Please stay safe out there. Too. And we want to wish you a lot of peace. Thank well. you so much. Thanks for listening. Served Up is brought to you by Southern Glazers Wine and Spirits. Produced by Zunu.online. Music by We Kill the Lion can be found on Spotify. 
Make sure to subscribe to be notified of future Served Up episodes. Cheers!